Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he's out. He's out. He's out. He's out. He's out. Look, at, look at this. Randy is out. And uh, Dean is mad. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh yeah, welcome aboard. Of course, this is John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, ready to knock out a solid two hours of baseball talk. Just a reminder, you could always tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli, and we'll keep this discussion interactive. A lot of things I want to get into today, I want to talk a little bit about Twitter, and there was something that happened over the past week involving a Mets fan on Twitter that I have to get into and have to talk about. And honestly, in its own right, probably isn't a big story, but there's a lot of points and a lot of different things that I want to get into with this. And I'm going to talk about it probably sometime either in this hour or next hour. But obviously, we're going to go over Bases Empty blog, a couple of my most recent posts. We'll talk about some stuff going on in Major League Baseball, either conventional or historical. But obviously, I do want to preview the 2013 World Series, which of course features two teams that have very storied histories. And, you know, I wanted to make sure that I recorded this before game one of the World Series. And, you know, at the time that, you know, the game's probably going to start within about an hour of my uh, recording of this broadcast. But, you know, I want to do get into some things. I thought it it would be pretty fitting to talk about the layoff that there was between the end of the League Championship Series and the start of the World Series, which I think is something that maybe Major League Baseball can do a little something, maybe start it a little sooner. I mean, to have four days off between the League Championship Series and a World Series, I understand you didn't go to seven games in either series, but I think the game, the game should have started a little bit sooner. Obviously, it allows um, for both teams' perspective them to kind of set their rotations up in the order that they want to set them out. But, you know, getting ready, you got obviously two very storied franchises. One team has won more World Series than any other team in the history of the National League, and the other team has won seven World Series. And between these two teams, they've won four of the last nine. So with the team that wins the World Series this year would have won between the two of them five of the last ten World Series, which you know shows a lot both of these teams have accomplished, obviously in recent years and their whole history. But you know, game one is going to start you got the Cardinals pitching Adam Wainwright in game one. And, you know, the situation with St. Louis, based on the way their series have gone, 
Adam Wainwright has not got a chance to start a game one in either the division series or the league championship series. So the Cardinals get a chance to pitch their best pitcher in game one if they want in game four and game seven. Otherwise, he'll pitch in game five. So I think that's a very good thing for the St. Louis Cardinals. The Boston Red Sox were going to go with Clay Buckholz, and you find out that Buckholz, you know, his uh, nagging injuries are not going to be able to allow him to pitch in game one of the World Series. And that's a big blow to the Boston Red Sox, who set their rotation up for Clay Buckholz to pitch in game number one. And, you know, here's a guy that obviously got off to a phenomenal start, you know, ended up missing about two, three months of the season, came back, pitched well. And for the most part, has pitched well since he's come back. I know he got roughed up in his game that he pitched against the Detroit Tigers. But here's a guy that I know the Boston Red Sox can count on to be an ace, to be a number one. I know John Lester has pitched the first game of the division series and the league championship series. And let's be honest, you got them both going on full cylinders. You got kind of a one and one A. Both of those guys could easily be the ace or the number two pitcher. Obviously shows that the Boston Red Sox have some depth in their pitching staff. And, you know, you run guys like John Lackey and Jake Peavy out there. Nothing to be ashamed of if you're the Boston Red Sox. And the Cardinals, of course, kind of have a series of pitchers that a lot of baseball fans haven't really followed. And you look at the St. Louis Cardinals coming into the season, you knew about Chris Carpenter's injury. And, you know, there was a doubt over whether he'd be able to pitch at all this season. And it doesn't look like he's going to pitch in the World Series either. You got Adam Wainwright, who, of course, everybody knows about. But other guys that were supposed to be members of the staff, were supposed to be integral parts of the St. Louis Cardinals starting pitching staff, have not been there. Jaime Garcia ends up being out for the year. Jake Westbrook is a guy who is, who is known to be a guy that they could depend on. Didn't work out this year. He's, he's not you know in, in the St. Louis Cardinals rotation. Lance Lynn, a guy who pitched very well last year, is subject to be a number four starter. And the St. Louis Cardinals have relied on some young pitching this year. Guys like Joe Kelly and Michael Waka, who he's seen several times throughout the postseason, as well as Shelby Miller. And Shelby Miller is a guy who had a very good season, was uh, you know just about as good as he was in the beginning of the season as he was in September, and has not made a postseason start. And you know it's because guys like Joe Kelly and particularly Michael Waka. And let's be honest, Michael Waka goes out there, pitches the gem that he did in game number six of the National League Championship Series. Obviously, he's a guy that the St. Louis Cardinals are going to go to again. Here's a guy that's going to be probably the future race of the St. Louis Cardinals pitching staff, even in a staff that has Adam Wainwright. So the depth of the St. Louis Cardinals pitching staff, I think to some point is underrated, but it's something that has to be considered going into this series. And I think you can make a very good and reasonable point that both of these teams are fairly even in regards to starting pitching. I think the bullpen with Koji O'Hara with the Boston Red Sox as the established closer, probably the best uh, relief pitcher in Major League Baseball this season, going at the end of games obviously gives Boston an advantage. The St. Louis Cardinals, who went for most of the season with Edwin Mejica as their closer, have gone with Trevor Rosenthal in the postseason, uh, you know, certainly have – a, a guy to go to, but don't have the advantage that the Boston Red Sox have. And, you know, you talked earlier this year, and I've talked about it a bunch, about the Red Sox not having Joel Hanrahan, not having Andrew Bailey, not having Andrew Miller. And they still have the ability to go out there and shut down the end of the game with guys like Janice Tazawa. Uh, Craig Breslow has been phenomenal. And I, I'll tell you, the Boston Red Sox bullpen, in spite of the guys that they're missing, still is a distinct advantage for them. And I would give the Red Sox the advantage 
in a, in, a, in in regards to their bullpen. But you know, offensively, you look at the way these teams run their lineups out there, and I gotta say, it's pretty even. I mean, you look at the St. Louis Cardinals, and we'll start off with them. We'll talk a little bit about you know Carlos Beltran and his postseason success. And you bring back Alan Craig. Alan Craig is a guy who's been out since the end of September, hasn't played in a postseason game. He's going to be ready for World Series game one. You know, you look at some other guys in that lineup, whether it's a Matt Holiday, Matt Carpenter, David Freeze. They got guys that could get the job done. Obviously, you get towards the bottom of the lineup, and you got guys like John Jay and Peter Cosma going up there. They should be guys that the Boston Red Sox should be able to get out. And obviously, Yadier Molina is probably going to be their cleanup batter again. You know, had an MVP-type season. The way he runs that pitching staff, the way he's learned to hit, he's become a very good hitting catcher in addition to everything that he does behind the plate. The St. Louis Cardinals got a good lineup. And, you know, the Boston Red Sox may have a little bit of an advantage here. I think they're a little deeper. You know, the way they go 1-2-3 with Ellsbury, Victorino, and Pedroia, getting you into Big Poppy and Mike Napoli, I mean, one through five is as strong as it could possibly be. And then you got guys like Johnny Gomes and Daniel Nava who are going to be playing left field. You got Steven Drew playing shortstop. You got Salta Lamakia catching. You know, this is a team that's very deep in their lineup. It doesn't look like you're going to get to a spot where you feel like there's an easy out. Of course, St. Louis is going to have their games at home where Boston's not going to be able to have the DH. And the question is, does David Ortiz play first base? And I think the answer may have to be yes. Here, here's a radical idea that I'm going to shoot down right off the bat. And I know some people on Twitter had brought it up. The possibility of, in the games in St. Louis, having David Ortiz play first base and Mike Napoli go back behind the plate. Mike Napoli, when he signed with the Boston Red Sox, obviously had his injury concerns of himself. Remember, he signed a three-year, $30 million contract with the Boston Red Sox to, you know, initially, which ended up getting voided and restructured to a one-year deal. And Mike Napoli's not going to catch. Mike Napoli will probably never catch another game in the major leagues. He signed with the Boston Red Sox to play first base. So this leaves the Red Sox in a little bit of a dilemma when they go to St. Louis because you don't want to take David Ortiz out of the lineup, but you also don't want to take Mike Napoli out of the lineup. Let's be honest. Napoli was one of the keys to the Boston Red Sox offensively being able to beat the Detroit Tigers in that series, you know, in the league championship series. So, you know, you don't necessarily want to take Napoli out, but, you know, who would you rather go without, Napoli or Ortiz? It's going to be a tough decision for manager John Farrell, and I look forward to seeing what goes on there because that's when I talked about the advantage that the Red Sox have offensively over the Cardinals. I think they do. I think it gets a little closer to being even if you take either Ortiz or Napoli out of the lineup, and it's something that definitely has to be looked at. I know the Cardinals are running John Jay out there playing center field. I think they should consider, at least on a part-time basis, using Shane Robinson. Shane Robinson has hit better. John Jay, who's been a very good defensive center fielder, has had some lapses this postseason. If I was the St. Louis Cardinals, I would consider, similar to the reason that the Cardinals went out there and bypassed Shelby Miller as a starting pitcher and went with Joe Kelly and went with Michael Waka. I think you may have to go with the hotter hand and Shane Robinson playing center field. May give you a little more offensively, may not but may give you some better defensively, may not. You know, we don't know, but I think it's a situation where to go in with the hot hand may help them in this World Series. But very interesting to see what happens in St. Louis. I'm very anxious to see. Uh, probably David Ortiz plays, but there's no other place to put Mike Napoli. It's not like you're going to be able to stick him in the outfield. You can't put him at third base, and he's definitely not going to catch. 
Jared Soltolamaki is going to be the catcher every, you know, just about every one of these games in a World Series. Maybe David Ross gets a chance to play. I mean, this is something the Red Sox don't have as a set number one catcher, though Jared Soltolamaki is going to catch more often than not. But they do go with David Ross at times. And John Farrell has done a good job in mixing in his guys off the bench, whether it's a Johnny Gomes, whether it's a, a Xander Bogarts, whether it's even a David Ross. To uh, you know, give themselves a, a very good chance to to win these ball games. But you know, listen, this World Series is going to be fun. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of it, like we did in the last show. I do want to get into the managers a little bit, talking about you know both of these managers' first time in a World Series. I think it's going to be very interesting to see. But really, on paper, I think you got to say that the Boston Red Sox have the stronger squad, and it doesn't mean it's going to work out that way because I think that I don't see either one of these teams being able to go in there and sweep this series. I don't think there's is, is a situation where you got, let's say, Red Sox-Cardinals of 2004. This isn't necessarily Red Sox-Rockies of 2007. This isn't one of those situations where the World Series is going to be so one-sided. Would it surprise anybody if it worked out that way? I guess not, because you know anything could happen in Major League Baseball. But you know the way these two teams match up against each other, I don't see a sweep. And I think both of these teams will play well. I think both of these teams will be able to win games on the road. I think the Cardinals could take a game in Boston. I think Boston could take a game in St. Louis. So I don't think either one of these teams has that distinct of an advantage. But if I had to go with my gut, I feel like the Boston Red Sox have an edge. They have the stronger bullpen, not just with Uehara, who's been phenomenal, but Tozawa and Breslow, and getting the ball to Uehara, I think is going to be easier than the St. Louis Cardinals getting the ball to Trevor Rosenthal. Because I think mentioned one thing that happened in the last series that I thought Mike Matheny would have gone out there and tried to do a little more, and that would have been the working guys like John Axford and Edwin Mejica, guys who have have the track record of being late game relievers. Edwin Mejica lost his closer job in September, had a terrible September, and probably deserved to lose his job as the closer. But he can be an asset. And if he's used properly, he could be a guy that can go out there and get hitters out. And he has not been used this postseason. Neither has John Axford. And John Axford's a guy that they acquired from the Milwaukee Brewers with that thought of being an eighth inning guy. And he hasn't really had much of a chance to do that. And if Mike Matheny is stuck with a gun to his head of having to go out there and use these guys, then I don't know how much you could have confidence with him. I mean, you saw what happened when Mejica came in there and when Axford came in there in that Dodger game. They gave up home runs. And it wasn't, it wasn't because they're not good pitchers. It had more to do with the fact that they had not been used at a, at a rapid enough pace to be able to do the job. And I, I think it's a situation where Matheny – in the right opportunity should use Mahika and Axford early in this series because if they could get them enough work, get them feeling confident enough, then later on in the series they could definitely help them out. I could see them him going to an Axford or a Mahika in game six and seven, and if they had gotten enough work, they could certainly make this Cardinal bullpen even better than it's been. And let's be honest, it's not that the Cardinals bullpen is pitched bad. I mean, the guys that have gone out there, the young guys, whether it's a Carlos Martinez, whether it's Rosenthal, who's been a closer, Seagrest, the left-hander, Manis, the right-hander, these have all been young guys that have come in there and gotten the job done on a consistent basis. So they deserve the credit, but I think the Cardinals' bullpen could be a little deeper if they used a couple veterans that they have in Mojica and Axford. But, you know, back to the offense, like I said, this is an advantage for the, for the Red Sox. They have the deeper lineup, but the lineup shrinks a little bit when you have to take either Poppy or 
Mike Napoli out of the lineup. And I think that's a big concern going into St. Louis. You got three straight games there. You're going to have three straight games where one of those guys probably isn't in the lineup. And I hope that John Farrell doesn't think that he could use Mike Napoli behind the plate. Because Mike Napoli is, is hurt. He's a guy playing first base that's battling some serious injuries and is not going to be able to catch a game behind the plate. And I'm not just talking about the base running stealing element. I think the Cardinals have a couple guys that could run the bases, but you know the Red Sox probably have more speed at the top of their order than the St. Louis Cardinals have. But it's a situation of being able to call a game, being able to catch the ball, and being not being a liability behind the plate. And I could think of even a guy like Victor Martinez behind the plate may not be a liability. I think Mike Napoli at this point in his career will be an absolute liability behind the plate. But tons of stuff to get into. World Series preview. We're going to do a lot of stuff. i got a couple interviews planned. But what we're going to do right now is take our first break at a passball show right here on the MTR Radio Network. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on after this. <laughs> Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. I'm going to play my first interview of the program today, and it's with former Major League pitcher Roger Salkeld. And Roger Salkeld was drafted number three overall in the 1990 draft by the Seattle Mariners and was a guy that certainly had a lot of promise, a lot of lot going on in regards to the hopes that he could become a top pitcher for the Seattle Mariners. It didn't necessarily work out, but he also he ended up being traded for Tim Belcher to the Cincinnati Reds, where he had a pretty good season there. And we get into a lot of stuff going on. But one thing I do want to mention that I remember, and I mentioned this last week when I had Ron Bloomberg on, I remember a baseball card, a Ron, a Ron Bloomberg card in 1987 tops. And it was a turn back the clock, Ron Bloomberg, first DH in Major League history. And I remember that baseball card pretty similarly to the way that I remember Roger Salkeld's first round draft pick card wearing a Seattle Mariner uniform. So it's just kind of things that I kind of go back to remember when I was a kid. I thought it was, you know, an interesting thing to bring up. But, you know, here comes my interview with Roger Salkeld, former pitcher for the Seattle Mariners and Cincinnati Reds. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher. Roger Salkeld. What's going on, Roger? How much? How much? How's it going? Oh, pretty good, man. Yeah, obviously, you know, you came up, you know, you had a chance to uh, be drafted in the first round, number three pick overall by the Mariners in 1989. Uh, take us back to that time and a little about what you know what you were going through and how how you felt come you know making your uh, professional debut. Uh, you know it was a, it was a, it was a fun time. It was exciting. You know I really didn't realize that I was even going to have a chance to have that happen at such an early age. You know I started getting a lot of uh, attention my junior year in high school, but to be sure where I was, you know. The expectations were never really there. It was just a matter of I knew I was going to get a chance to go play. Um, and that's really honestly all I wanted to do. I wasn't much of a college-bound kid. So being drafted as high as I was, it wasn't, you know, it was a no-brainer to sign and go off and try to make a living at it. 
Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. You end up being drafted by the Mariners, a team that was was going through some some tough times, you know, around that time. Uh, tell us a little bit about your feeling about playing for the Mariners and how you know how you felt kind of putting on a uniform for the first time. Yeah, I mean, it was obviously it was a big change, it was different, being away from home, and you know, not really knowing anybody, and you know, the only thing you really knew at the time was how to play baseball. So that basically what I went out and did. I just I focused on trying to win as many games as I could and, and be the best professional I could. Um, you know, you get a little homesick to start, so you know, I struggled for a little bit. I, I mean, my numbers were fine, but I struggled more with the mental side of it and all that. And as soon as I got through that and started to meet people and hang out with people, you get a little more comfortable and, and things start to get a little easier. And then, then it's just a whole lot easier just to focus on the baseball end of it. You know, the Mariners were a great organization to me. They took really good care of me. Um, you know, when I got traded, it was a weird time. But for me, the trade, the trade ended up working out better than, than I thought it would. Yeah, now of course, you know, you play for those Mariners teams, you're up in 93 and 94, and, you know, at the time, guys like Ken Griffey Jr. are up, and, you know, you see the team start to kind of take shape and kind of go in a positive direction. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, what, you know, what it felt kind of pitching for the Mariners and being on those teams. Yeah, I mean, you know, we were never really, we were never, we never really contended for much, and I was such a small part of both those years that, you know, I was in and out, up and down from AAA to the big leagues, but I said all the guys in the clubhouse were great. Um, some of the, 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 the few games that I did get to pitch, um, you know, it was great. It was a real good learning experience. And that's kind of what I felt like my Mariner career kind of was. Um, it seemed to kind of prepare me for the extended version, which I always call it because I didn't play for them. You know, I didn't play for him all that much. I spent more time in a red uniform than I did anything. So I took a lot from a lot of those learning experiences, a lot of my struggles, which I, you know, with the Mariners, I struggled a little more than I had success. And when I moved over to the Reds, I seemed to, I was able to, you know, use that, those struggles to, to have a little bit more success. But no, I mean, my, my big league debut was fantastic. You know, I, I opened up against uh, Baltimore. And uh, had a really good game. I think I went five innings. And I ended up getting no decision, I think. But, I mean, you really, it's just tough to compare it to anything. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Now, once again, John Pielli here with former major league pitcher Roger Sawtell. Now, you know, you end up getting traded to the Reds, like you mentioned, you know, and uh, Tim Belcher ends up going the other way. Uh, you know, in, in 1996, you get a good chance to pitch for the majority of the season with the Reds. Things kind of come through. I think you were 8-5 that year. You know, you, you, you seem to throw the ball pretty well. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, the 96 season pitching for the Reds. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll start with the 95 season. Okay. Um, I went and played down at AAA when I got traded, and um, I ended up going 12 and 2 that year, and had a phenomenal season. But we just had a—I mean, we had a phenomenal team. Uh, my manager was Mark Bombard. He was a real, you know, player-friendly manager. He, he got along with everybody, and it was really comfortable. The minute I got traded over, it's just like I fit right in. Um, we had a great season. I had a great year. It earned me a, a, a spot in Big League Camp the next year. And I just, I rolled right in from that end of that season into spring training and kind of did the same things. And had a lot of success in spring and made the, made the club out of spring and started off really hot. You know, I don't I can't remember. I think I might have won like three games in the first month. 
and then I started having like the hot and cold starts here and there, and um, I just planned the whole season for him, like you said, and ended up eight and five. But uh, you know, it was a, it was a great it was a great experience too. The Reds were a, a great organization. Yeah, yeah, they've always been known as a very good organization. Uh, you know, as you as you go forward, you end up, you know, pitching for a little bit after it. Tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, the the, t the trials and tribulations afterwards or after the 1996 season. Yeah, I you know, subpar, it's not the same. So you do everything you can to try to get back, but the realization is you're sitting in these bullpens at 28, 29, and 30 years old, and you've now become the old guy. So, you know, now most teams are always going to give those young guys the shots first and maybe rely on an older guy later, but, yeah, I mean, it's just that's one of those things that was rough. You know, I went from back injury to small arm injuries to in and out of the pen to back to the rotation and you know just never really uh, got back to the big leagues and I ended up calling it quits in 2000. Yeah, once again, John Pialli here with former Major League pitcher Roger Sockel. Now, you know, you know, you end up, uh, you know, your grandfather Bill ends up being a former Major League catcher, and you know, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you didn't get to see him that much since he, you know, he be, be passed away like, a long time ago. Now, uh, was there anything that you kind of took from from him being a Major League player that kind of motivated you? I never met my grandfather. My okay. grandfather died before I was born. Yeah, yeah, I thought, I thought, I thought yeah. so. From your own perspective, was there any one major moment throughout your career, either in the major leagues or in the minor leagues, that kind of stands out to you? Yeah, I mean, for me, um, on Father's Day in 1996, I threw a four-hit complete shutout, uh, complete game shutout against the Expos, and that's probably that's, that's other than being drafted where I was, that's the highlight of my career. Yeah, that was, uh, sounds good, man. Now, as you're as you're going through, as as you're trying to develop yourself as a pitcher, kind of going back a little bit. Once again, this is John Fialli. I'm here with uh, Roger Salkel. Now, is there any particular player, coach, maybe former pitcher, or anybody that had a strong influence in your development? Yeah, I mean, when I was with the Mariners, there was a pitch on my pitching coach for oh, a couple two three years, and then you know, plus spring trainings and all the time we spent individually with him. His name was Bobby Clayar. Okay. Um, he seemed to have the right, the right words. I mean, you, you, as a player, you go through the organizations and you run through so many different coaches that you kind of lock on one that has that certain language that he speaks that you can understand, where you can put, you know, mind to body. His, his, his words 
in your head and you can put them through your body. Whereas some guys, they say things to you and it just doesn't make any sense. So, yeah, I mean, you know, being a baseball player, being a, any, any kind of player, every year it's about reinventing yourself. You know, you have to keep getting better and better every year to be able to compete. You have to come up with little tweaks each and every year to be able to compete. You can't roll out the same guy, you know, day in and day out and be able to succeed. You know, there's, there's a few, you know, there's a few, but, the, you know, those are what you call the freaks of baseball. Now, for the most part, everybody has to, you know, you, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle more than you uh, succeed. And the guys that just, you know, constantly succeed, succeed are the guys that make the two and three hundred million dollars. Yeah. And those are far and between. So, you know, just to survive, just to survive, you constantly have to reinvent yourselves. Yeah, very true, man. Listen, Roger, I want to thank you for having some time today. I appreciate you being part of the program, and, you know, let's stay in touch. Maybe I can speak to you sometime in the near future. Uh, no problem. Thank you. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot there. Roger Salkel, the former pitcher for the Seattle Mariners and Cincinnati Reds. And obviously, you know, you hear about his trials and tribulations and his experience in the game. But what we're going to do is we're going to take our next break. Uh, we'll be back to finish up a solid hour to pass ball show right here on the MTR Radio Network. Back after this. Hey, guys and gals. Want to have a great time dining out while watching your favorite sport on HGTV? Then come on down to Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, located on Route 1 South in Trenton in the Mercer Mall. Hi, I'm Deja. And I'm Corey. These are great deals all week, bound to whet your appetite and satisfy your hunger. Check out our Bunday Mondays, where you can have a delicious cheeseburger and fries for only $6.99. On Tuesdays, we have all-you-can-eat wings all day, just $12.99 per person or $10.99 for boneless. On Wednesdays, you can get 10 boneless wings and an order of fries for just $6.99. On Saturday, kids eat free for every meal ordered by an accompanying adult, and the meals are served on Frisbee. We have half-price appetizers from 10 p.m. until close every day. You can then enjoy your cold draft beer with our mouth-watering crab clusters for only $5. Remember, we are located in Trenton on Route 1 South in the Mercer Mall, just south of Quaker Bridge Road. For any information, call us at 609-520-WINGS. That's 609-520-9464. So come on in and watch your favorite football team while having a great meal, served up by the nicest and the hottest girls anywhere. Hope to see you there. I'm Karen Siaska Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call, 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. Listening to MTR Radio, powered by MTRmedia.com.
Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, a reminder, just tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. And, of course, we keep this conversation interactive throughout the show and usually afterwards. But, you know, a couple different things I want to get into is, uh, you know, JohnPielli.com, Bases Empty Blog, the whole thing. A couple of the most recent things that I've written about is, you know, we got into the Boston Red Sox. And, you know, everybody talked in the offseason about how, listen, the Red Sox went out there and addressed a series of needs as opposed to spending a lot of money in one place. And some people, maybe some Boston fans, maybe some non-Boston fans, some baseball fans suggested that the Red Sox go out there and use the money that was allocated when they traded Adrian Gonzalez and Carl Crawford and Josh Beckett to the Los Angeles Dodgers to go out there and get guys like Josh Hamilton and Joe Maurer and maybe just change the uh, the leadership from a superstar standpoint and make this team competitive going, going forward. Now, that could have worked out. Josh Hamilton could have come to the Red Sox and, you know, had a phenomenal season. And Joe Maurer, of course, you know, did very well for the Minnesota Twins this year. And the Red Sox may possibly be a postseason team. There's no proof that that would have worked or it didn't work. But the bottom line is the Red Sox decided to go out there and address the needs throughout the team with the amount of money that they had that they were able to save when those other players were traded. And going out there and signing guys like, Abe Shane Victorino, Johnny Gomes, Stephen Drew, Koji Uehara. You know, they were able to address the series of needs with players like this. And, you know, even guys like David Ross and Mike Napoli. You know, the list goes on, the amount of players that the Boston Red Sox brought in to try to address their needs as a team. Now, what ends up, you know, what ends up happening, obviously, all these moves work out. But let's be honest. Let's not be silly here. And let's not say that none of these moves were made without a distinct amount of criticism. The Shane Victorino signing was looked at as, as being a typical Boston slash New York type of signing, overpaying for a guy that may be towards the end of his career. If you looked at Shane Victorino last year with the Philadelphia Phillies, you looked at him with the Los Angeles Dodgers after he was traded, you looked at a guy that was certainly seemed like he was near the end of his career. Now, obviously, it hasn't worked out this way. He's done a phenomenal job for the Red Sox, was a key contributor, obviously, in the ALCS, went over to Detroit Tigers, hitting that grand slam against Jose Veras. But here's a guy that went out there and simply got the job done. Then you can't say going into the season that you knew that he was going to get the job done. And that's my point. I think a lot of these moves are made, and you know, once they're made, they're fed with their share of criticism. And the Shane Victorino signing had every right to be criticized by the Boston Red Sox fan base and Major League Baseball. The bottom line is it worked out. So what you can't do now is if you criticize the move going in, you can't go out there and praise the Boston Red Sox and say that this was such a phenomenal move that was so foolproof when it was made. Because sometimes these moves just end up working out. Sometimes things end up rolling in the right direction. You know, nobody could have said that they thought that Shane Victorino going to the Boston Red Sox was going to be a perfect fit for the Red Sox and Victorino. Now, Victorino has been battling some injuries this year. He's been a switch hitter throughout his career and has decided to bat right-handed predominantly. Well, he goes out there and hits a grand slam against a right-hand pitcher in Game 6 of the ALCS. If anybody says they saw that coming, you're lying. You know, and my, my point about the whole thing is it's not, to me, it's not about going, going out there and saying, all right, you made all the right moves, 
going in and they ended up working out. Sometimes moves that you don't think are going to work out, work out. And a Shane Victorino contract right now looks good. It really does. Even if Victorino takes a step back next year, everything that he was able to do for the Boston Red Sox this year makes that three-year deal worthwhile. And, you know, if the Red Sox struggled to finish to 500 this year and Victorino did well, then maybe the deal wouldn't look as good as it does right now because he's leading them to a possible World Series championship. Mike Napoli, you know, a, a, a guy who almost got a three-year deal for the Boston Red Sox, which was felt with his share of criticism as well. You know, giving a guy a three-year deal coming off the injury history that he has, obviously the renegotiation of his contract after the first one was voided ends up being a good thing for the Boston Red Sox. But you look at, you know, a guy who was coming from the Texas Rangers where he had some postseason success, and it was understandable. And, you know, the Red Sox went out there and gave him the money. It ends up only being a one-year deal. But, you know, in the end, it looks like a phenomenal contract for the Boston Red Sox. And there's some other moves that they made that were probably felt with some sort of criticism. Steven Drew paying him $9.5 million for one year after what he went through in Arizona at the beginning of last year. You know, the owner was criticizing Steven Drew of whether he wanted to play. You know, is that the kind of player that you want to come to Boston and play shortstop for you on a guaranteed $9.5 million? Well, listen, he ended up having a decent year when he was healthy. He helped the Oakland Athletics get to the postseason in 2012. So there was no doubt that that ended up being a risk probably worth taking. But that's another move that has worked out very well for the Boston Red Sox. And we talked about Koji Uhara, who was brought there to essentially be a third pitcher out of the bullpen, with Hanrahan being the closer and Andrew Bailey being the setup man. You know, Koji Uhara, who could have come in there and be a sixth, seventh inning pitcher, is now taking the stage as a closer, not only as a closer, but as one of the best closers in all of Major League Baseball. So I think that's another move that, listen, you said was okay maybe when you made it. Maybe there was some criticism for it, giving a guy two years. You know, the guy's had some injury history himself. You know, maybe was not the most guaranteed guy to go in there and fill a role. Well, that's another move that worked out tremendously for the Boston Red Sox. And you put all these moves together that were made, and – you know, it's like Ben Sherrington's rolling sevens every single time in the craps table. And and it, it, some of those moves were more risky than others. I mean, you bring in a guy like Johnny Gomes, you know, for the role that he has was a move that you would think would go out there and, and be a reasonable move for you. But some of the other moves were met with its share of criticism. And, you know, the Napoli deal may not have looked as bad being a one-year deal as opposed to a three-year deal, but the Victorino deal was definitely criticized. The Stephen Drew move was dealt with its share of criticism. And in the end, you know, you, you, you know I don't know, baseball fans are so easily swayed by what just happened. Like, you know, we're going to get into this, and I'm going to talk about this in the offseason, how you're going to anoint every team that made the playoffs this year to be a dominating favorite to be in the postseason next year. It never works out that way. And people just sway their arms and their heads every time something ends up going in its favor. Shane Victorino has a good postseason, and Shane Victorino is automatically a great signing for the Boston Red Sox. Well, you know what? It was a good signing because it worked out. And that's my point. You know, some moves that are made are dealt with their share, deal with their share of criticism, but in the end end up working out. And because it worked out, it was a good deal. It wasn't necessarily a good deal at the beginning, but any deal that you make with a player, whether you go out there and you sign Jason Bay or Matt Holiday, you know, obviously Matt Holiday was the great signing and Jason Bay was the terrible signing. 
and it was all determined by the results. If Jason Pay went out there and had, you know, three 30 home run seasons, we wouldn't talk about in New York with the New York Mets being one of the worst free agent signings in the history of their franchise. But it didn't work out. And sometimes you got to put it on the player to determine whether it's going to be a success or a failure. In Jason Bay's case, Jason Bay didn't get the job done. Blame Jason Bay. Don't blame the New York Mets. And in the Boston Red Sox perspective, Shane Victorino ended up having a very good year for the Red Sox and leading him into the World Series. So give Shane Victorino the credit, not the Boston Red Sox. And I hope I get my point there. Because you talk all the time about free agent signings and trades that either work out or don't work out. But you know the determination of whether the player was good and ends up putting up good numbers is the reason why the move was either good or bad. And you can't predict these things going in. A lot of these moves that you hear and you know we talk about it and we're going to spend all offseason talking about, hey, this guy signed with this team. Was it a good move or a bad move? Sometimes you got to hold that off and see how the player ends up. Number one, kind of mixing in with his new teammates. And number two, ends up performing. Because those are two determining factors over whether the signing or the trade is going to be a good or a bad one. And while we are on the subject of the Boston Red Sox, we're going to talk a little bit about the managers now as we get ready for the World Series to start. And you talk about two guys that are managing each one of their respective clubs, from John Farrell with the Boston Red Sox to Mike Matheny with the St. Louis Cardinals. And neither of these managers have managed in a World Series before. And I know we talked about the storied franchises, the success that these teams have had over the last several seasons, but obviously... The Red Sox had their success under Terry Francona. The St. Louis Cardinals had their World Series success under Tony La Russa. And now you have two managers that are both involved in a World Series game for the first time in their major league careers as a manager. And, you know, of course, Mike Matheny, you know, very good catcher, very good defensive catcher for several years. The Cardinals, the Brewers, amongst other teams. You know, John Farrell, pitcher for the, you know, the Angels and the Cleveland Indians, you know, had a good pitching career. Farrell, of course, becomes the Boston Red Sox pitching coach in a 2007 season, the first, you know, the second year that they won the World Series. So he has a World Series ring as a pitching coach. Of course, Farrell ends up leaving after the 2010 season to go to the Toronto Blue Jays to be their manager for a couple of years. Ends up coming back once Bobby Valentine was fired following the 2012 season. Matheny ends up taking over for La Russa after La Russa retires, after the Cardinals won their last World Series in the 2011 season. And I'm going to start off with the Cardinals and talk about Matheny and what he ends up inheriting. He inherits a team that just won the World Series and just lost his best player in Albert Pujols. Albert Pujols leaves as a free agent to go to the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, and obviously it's a deal that to this point has not worked out for the Angels or for Albert Pujols and he's able to get this team to continue to compete. I know we give a lot of credit to John Mozeliak, the general manager, and he has done a phenomenal job, you know, bringing in players that could come in there, like an Alan Craig, or when Alan Craig's hurt, to bring in a Matt Adams. You know, to have all these guys ready to kind of replace the, uh, the other players that aren't necessarily either getting the job done, leave, or get hurt. And, as, you know, it was a very good job by John Mozeliak, but Mike Matheny has, has taken a lot on his, on his own plate. Here's a guy that's come in there, no managerial experience prior to taking a job with St. Louis. Before that, he was he was in the um, he was the Cardinals minor league instructor, and he ends up taking a job as a manager, like I said, with no prior managerial experience. And what what has he done? Well, obviously he's gone out there and he's gotten the team to the postseason two straight years. 
He got the Cardinals to the playoffs last year, albeit as the second wild card team in the first season that we had two wild cards. But he got the team there, and they beat the Atlanta Braves in a one-game play-in. And then he beat the Washington Nationals in the NLDS to get to the NLCS and took the San Francisco Giants to seven games in just his first season as manager. So you got to give him some credit for that. And the same credit has to be given to Boston Red Sox manager John Farrell, who, of course, like I just mentioned, was on the 2007 team as the pitching coach. And prior to that was the director of player development with the Indians. He left his position, of course, to become the pitching coach. And then left his job was the Red Sox to become the Toronto Blue Jays manager. The Blue Jays won 81-81 and 81 in 2011. They struggled to be 73-89 and 89 last year. And he was the one who chose on his own to get out of his contract to take the job as the manager of the Boston Red Sox. And remember, this is the same Boston Red Sox team that was the only team in American League East to finish with a worse record than the Toronto Blue Jays. You know, they finished at 69 and 93. The Blue Jays were 73 and 89. So if you want to look at what I mentioned before about, hey, the team in, in, in the grand scheme of the public is only as good as it was last year, then you can make a case that the Toronto Blue Jays were a better team than the Boston Red Sox. You factor in what the Blue Jays did in the offseason, getting Jose Reyes and R.A. Dickey and the moves like that, which obviously the team did not have a good year. It didn't work out for the Toronto Blue Jays. But you can make a case that on paper, the Toronto Blue Jays' job was more interesting or more desired than the Boston Red Sox job. But Farrell went to where he wanted to go. He said that you know he had, a, he had a out in his contract that would allow him to go to Boston to take over as the manager because that's where he wanted to be a major league manager at. And he ended up taking, taking advantage of it. John Farrell has done a good job this year particularly the pitching of the Boston Red Sox, has been a lot better than it was last year. Guys like John Lester you know, have stepped up. Clay Buckholz, you know, his injury notwithstanding, was phenomenal this year. Both guys had issues last year. You know, and you look at a team that has certainly taken itself to the next level under John Farrell. Maybe some of it had to do with Bobby Valentine leaving. You can make a case that you know, the, you know, it was an addition by subtracting situation with the Boston Red Sox letting, letting Bobby Valentine go. But, you know, also similarly to what I said before, the moves that the Boston Red Sox made, you know, have a lot to do with the success that they've had. And some of it has to be given to Ben Sherrington as the general manager. And some credit has to go to John Farrell as the manager. So you got two guys here and Matheny and Farrell who are both in their first World Series, managing World Series teams for the first time. One of them is going to come out a winner. One of them is going to come out a loser. So in my opinion, and maybe your opinion on Twitter, tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. Do you think one manager has the advantage over the other? I think it's pretty even. I think John Farrell is managing in his third season in the major league, so he's got more games behind the bench. I think he's had a chance to deal with more different rosters, obviously being in Toronto for two years and Boston for this year. Mike Matheny comes over, and the team has done nothing but done well. Tony Lewis's team won the World Series in 2011. Mike Matheny comes in in 2012. They got back to the playoffs in his first year. They obviously won the National League Central Division this year with some competition. And let's be honest, I mean, they competed all season long with the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Cincinnati Reds. The other two teams that ended up making the playoffs, you know, as wildcard teams were in the same division. So, you know, a very competitive division, in my opinion, the most competitive division in all of Major League Baseball this past season. I don't want to hear anything about the American League East. I mean, the Yankees were down. They didn't get the job done. I mean, the Yankees, if you wanted to put the Yankees up against the Cincinnati Reds, the Cincinnati Reds had the better season and were the better team. 
So the best division in all Major League Baseball was the National League Central. And in my opinion, it was hands down. And Mike Matheny led the St. Louis Cardinals to win that division. So do I give Matheny an edge? No, I really don't give either one of these guys the edge. I think both managers have done a phenomenal job with their teams. And I don't think the decisions behind the bench, you know, the managerial calls are going to be the deciding factor in this series. And I really do think that it's going to be a situation where the Red Sox probably have a talent advantage over the St. Louis Cardinals, but it's not by that much. And I'll tell you, it's a situation where I could see either one of these teams winning this series in six games. I mean, it could be a seven-game series. I think if, you know, just the, the safe bet would be Boston in seven or Boston in six. And I think you could say St. Louis in seven. That would be a safe enough bet to say that both teams are going to compete and be in there in regards to this series. I don't think it's going to be a sweep. I don't think one of these teams is going to necessarily go in here and run over the other, the other opposing team. But it's going to be interesting to see which one of these managers, John Farrell or Mike Matheny, will go out there and get themselves a World Series ring as a manager. You know, Terry Francona won two with the Boston Red Sox. He's now with the Cleveland Indians. Tony La Russa won two World Series with the St. Louis Cardinals, another with the Oakland Athletics, and won three more pennants. But he's no longer there. It's Mike Matheny's team. So one of these managers, either John Farrell or Mike Matheny will go out there and get themselves a World Series ring. And in Matheny's case, it'll be in his second year as a manager of the St. Louis Cardinals. In Farrell's case, it'll be his third year managing overall and his first with the Boston Red Sox. So something very, very interesting. To so we're going to take a little bit of a break talking about the World Series now. And I'm going to get into some uh, some historical things. And you know, one of them would have been a guy's birthday, a guy who managed in a Detroit Tigers organization and played a little bit in the major leagues that few people even really know about but you know here's a guy that you know had a sudden death at age 39 of a heart attack and that's Dwight Lowry and Dwight Lowry was a former major with the Detroit Tigers and during this week it would have been Lowry's 56th birthday and of course I just mentioned he died on July 10th 1997 of a heart attack just hours after managing a game in a Detroit farm system now Lowry's playing career never stood out he, he had started to establish himself as a solid manager and over time, odds were he would have been given a strong consideration to get a managerial spot in the major leagues. As a player, he made his major league debut with the Tigers in 1984, the year they won the World Series for the last time. Now, he shared the backup catcher duties, and the starting catcher was Lance Parrish. And, you know, it was a situation where he ended up getting a job to start the season. They sent him down to the minors for a little while. Marty Castillo was the other catcher. So uh, he backed up Parrish while... Lowry wasn't there. Lowry came back in September and was left off the postseason roster. Castillo, you know, ends up hitting a home run in one of the World Series games. Lowry spends the entire 1985 season in the minors, returned to be Parrish's primary backup in 1986. However, a young catcher by the name of Matt Noakes was coming up. Parrish ends up leaving, and Lowry saw a little playing time during the 1987 season. The Tigers once again returned to the postseason, and it, once again, it was somebody else other than Lowry who was on the postseason roster. Veteran Mike Heath was the backup catcher to Matt Noakes that year. And Lowry ends up getting seven at-bats for the 1988 Minnesota Twins. And after playing AAA you know, for the Montreal Expos organization in 1990, he hung up his spikes. He's a very knowledgeable player, though, and allowed him to be a very successful minor league coach. In 1994, he was named manager of the Fayetteville Generals, where he remained through the 1996 season. The team finished first place in the division in 1995 
and won the second half South Atlantic League division title a year later. He was named Detroit Tiger Player Development Man of the Year for that season. For a 1997 season, he was given a job to manage the Jamestown Jammers of the New York Penn League. Unfortunately, just three weeks into the season, he suffered a massive heart attack and died, and he left behind a wife and three young children. Reports say that he suffered a heart attack within an hour of the game in which the Jammers won. Lowry was inducted into the South Atlantic League Hall of Fame in 1998 posthumously. The Detroit Tigers Player Development Man of the Year Award has been changed to the Dwight Lowry Award in honor for a man who was certain to be a mix into being a major league manager down the road. And I think, you know, that's kind of sad when you see a guy that does have the potential, the ability to kind of run things from behind the bench. And let's be honest. I mean, we look at managers in Major League Baseball. There's a lot of guys that don't last for very long. There's a lot of guys that are, are looked upon as guys that maybe either overmanage or undermanage. And, you know, you'd like to see as many fresh minds get an opportunity to, to get, do the job in the major leagues. And Dwight Lowry was that guy. And unfortunately, a guy who didn't have much success as a major league player and a major league catcher was certainly on a path to at least be a solid major league coach, maybe a bench coach, and maybe someday a general manager. So rest in peace, Dwight Lowry, a guy who would have been 56 years old this past week. Another guy who was born on his date, it was you know would be way up there in years if he was still alive, was Vern Stevens. And Vern Stevens was a shortstop for the St. Louis Browns and the Boston Red Sox for many years. And if you look at some of the numbers that the guy put up, he belongs in baseball's Hall of Fame. And I know it was about a year ago when I was on the past ball show, I was making the same statement. And, I, you know, good thing we'll go up against the hour because we're only talking about, you know, something that, you know, should have been done a long time ago. And that's Vern Stevens being in baseball's Hall of Fame. You know, we talked about shortstop not being such an offensive position. Well, Vern Stevens was ahead of his time. He was a guy that hit 30 home runs. He was a big power bat. The only criticism was maybe he didn't get to play that long. He didn't play long enough to be worthy of the Hall of Fame. But this was a guy who put up Hall of Fame numbers for the shortstop position and better numbers than really any of his contemporaries. And you look at some of the guys, such as the Cal Ripken, you know, obviously Derek Jeter, guys like that. You know, Alex Rodriguez has Hall of Fame numbers as a shortstop. He may never get in, but, you know, Vern Stevens did similar numbers to what these guys did. Obviously not 54 home runs, but 30 home runs was a sh for a shortstop is something to, to definitely be proud of. And Vern Stevens is one of the guys that I add to my list of guys that should be in baseball's Hall of Fame. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take our first five-minute break of the program. We'll be back with another solid hour of baseball talk back after this.